0: Welcome to a new season of The Balance Sheet, where you can rise above the noise and learn about the most important business issues of our age. I'm your host, Conrad Chua. Before we get started, if you're new to the show, you can uh, pop your questions or comments in the comments field, whether you're watching us on LinkedIn, YouTube. You can start by writing down where in the world you're watching this from today. For this new season, we're going to focus on one, several key issues, one of which is sustainability. This is a key challenge for business, society, and the planet. And is an area that we at the business school are paying very close attention to. A key player in all of this is the asset management industry. It's huge and its decisions and actions affect large parts of the global economy. It is also very recently increasingly adopted ESG investing as an additional lens when doing when deciding which companies to invest in. But that has also prompted a backlash, largely starting and taking place in certain states in the US. Here to help uh, us make sense of all this is Amelia Tan, Head of Responsible Investment Strategy at Legal and General Investment Management, UK's largest asset manager. She's responsible for integrating the responsible investment process across investment teams, as well as the strategy, innovation, and governance of product solutions. Amelia joined LGIM in 2022 after 10 years at BlackRock. At BlackRock, she led the delivery of sustainability propositions in EMEA. And prior to BlackRock, she was at Citibank. In Singapore, so welcome, Amelia.
1: Hi, thanks very much for having me, and it's amazing to see the variety of um, locations that all the hellos are coming from. That's amazing. Very nice to yeah. meet you all, and thank okay. you so much for, for joining us.
0: So, Amelia, if you could start off by telling us what is the asset management industry? What does it do?
1: Ah, yes. So, the asset management industry effectively manages um the uh, the investments uh, on behalf of you know people around the world and this could mean for example your savings uh you know when you invest in an investment fund uh it could be as part of your pension and sometimes your pension manager your pension schemes actually uh, uh, invest in funds uh, that we manage on behalf of of you so uh, we, we at least in the asset management industry like to think that you know we're sa- we're, we're managing the savings of teachers and 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 firemen uh, 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 across the world.
0: Mm. And how do you um, think about your duty to those clients? You know, what is it that they have their objectives, and how do you match those objectives?
1: Absolutely. So one of the key things I think. Uh, if we think about it, is that a lot of people, especially when you're talking about pensions, is that you're saving for their retirement, right? They are saving for their retirement. So when we think about what our fiduciary duties are to the uh, to our investors who are investing in our portfolios, uh, that is effectively to manage uh, and to protect, I suppose, their financial interests. So that is the primary uh, uh, I would say, um, motivation. Uh, It is our primary purpose. Uh, It's really to um, ensure sort of to help with the financial well-being of of investors uh, across the world.
0: And is that simply a case of, well, just like if I were a retail investor, I just look at some stocks, some investments, I put them in and I review them every month. Or do you take uh, or do some asset management firms take different approaches to uh, safeguarding the financial uh, uh, performance of their investments for clients?
1: Sure. So I would say, uh, it, depending on the types, I suppose, of investments, um, okay. you've got different types of investments. So for example, uh, you have investments uh, that are basically tracking uh, indices uh, and this means, and we call them index trackers or index strategies. Uh, and effectively what they're meant to do is they are meant to Uh, ensure that the the portfolio tracks as closely as possible to the reference benchmark, so to speak. And this benchmark could be anything, right? It could be uh, MSCI World, it could be S&P 500, major indices in the world, it could be fixed income uh, indices. And then you've got the active portfolios. And what they are trying to do is typically uh, to outperform uh, a benchmark, for example, they could, for example, be targeting a specific absolute return. Uh, So, you know, cash plus, let's say, 3% or 5%, depending on the risk appetite of investors. Um, And on that basis, uh, when we think about financial performance, we are, uh, across all of these types of strategies, you know, we have an inherent, I would say, uh, rationale and and motivation for ensuring that, ultimately, there is long-term sustainability of the real economy, because if economies don't work uh, and if they uh, they, are, they don't survive over the long term, then that has a direct impact on people's finances. And so that's uh, the, the the so that's of why we care, I suppose. Mm. One of the things to bear in mind, of course, is that different people have different investment horizons. If you're saving for your first home, that's slightly different from saving for your retirement and Again, depending on where you are in life, uh, you know, your retirement could be a few years' time or it could be 20, 30 years' time. So it really depends uh, on, on individual investors. Ultimately, our time horizons, uh, when we think about uh, investing, is um, it comprises the spectrum of it, right? We want to think about how we are performing in the short term, medium term, but also long term.
0: Mm. So, why do asset management firms now? Care, or have recently started to care about ESG?
1: Yes, so this is, um, I would say some, some managers probably more recent than others. Uh, I like to think that L- Jim are, you know, we've been doing this for a very long time. Um, the, why do we care about sustainability? Ultimately, it all goes back to our fiduciary duties as asset managers. And that means that um, if you think about the world, uh, you want to care about the real economy, and so to give you an example, um, you know, we care about nature and biodiversity not because penguins are cute or panda bears are cute. You know, like we care about it because um, ultimately nature and biodiversity have a massive impact on GDP. In fact, it accounts for 55% of the world's GDP. That's approximately, I would say, uh, 58 trillion dollars of exposure to material nature risk if we don't take immediate action. Now, what that then means is, okay, well, first of all, there are risks and opportunities associated with that. If we think then about what that means on a day-to-day basis when it comes to making investment decisions uh, like that, there are also certain things that are really driving part of that. So taking, again, this nature and biodiversity uh, example, in, uh, we've had now at the uh, 15, the recent one, a more coordinated policy action to protect 30% of land and oceans by 2030. So what that then means is as investors, we start to anticipate that there will be more coordinated policy action. So you'll see you know, regulators coming up with uh, more um, uh, policies, more regulations, more incentives to effectively meet that global goal. So to give you an example of what that translates to, uh, in the EU, there is a new um, deforestation free products regulation. And what this does uh, is it in effect says that uh, imports and exports from the EU must not be from land that was deforested after 2020. What does that mean? That means that they care about whether or not products like cattle, soy, um, palm oil, uh, whether the products that relate to these commodities uh, have come from land that was deforested. And if they were, then these companies are are found to have reached that regulation. They would face fines of something like 4% of annual turnover. That's a significant financial risk for any firm. And so that means that as an investor... We should take into account what it is that these companies are doing. Are they actually, you know, taking uh, 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 or importing or exporting products from deforested lands, as an example? Sorry, go ahead, uh, Conrad. Yeah.
0: yeah, I was saying, I was going to show this comment from Muboka, who talks about um, it's great tips, this biodiversity versus GDP. But am I right hearing from you that actually it's not? one or the other, but actually both of them are kind of linked. It's just that so far we haven't costed biodiversity or counted it in the same way that we might count uh, how much Apple iPhones are being sold today um, or how much carbon emissions we're emitting. Is that the case?
1: Absolutely. So I think one of the key challenges we've had with thinking about sustainability issues uh, is that we haven't costed the, uh, it doesn't feature, right, in economist models. So if you think about uh, it, the economists and how they think about the world, they price human capital. They don't price natural capital, right, in, in their in their models, in their valuations, in their forecasting. Now, if we don't understand that this is not an infinite resource, then we use it to the you know to whatever <laughs> amounts mm-hmm. and, and proportions that we want to. So there is certainly Uh, a a better understanding that this is not an infinite resource. This is something that we have to take into account um, uh, as something that we have to invest in over time, much like we invest in human capital. And uh, talking about costing and being able to do that, in order to quantify the cost, we need to understand what are the costs and, and understand what companies are doing. And so actually very recently, I'm talking about last week, in fact, um, we had the final publication uh, of the task force uh, for uh, nature related financial disclosures coming up with these new uh, uh, standards and guidelines and recommendations on how you should be disclosing about the nature related uh, 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 considerations in your businesses. Uh, and that I think will really help to deliver on the data that. We as asset managers need to price and to value companies based on that.
0: Mm. So you mentioned about you know trying to price or quantify the biodiversity impact, and as I mentioned, I think there's now quite a lot of uh, a thought and infrastructure given to measuring the environmental impact, like carbon emissions. Of course, ESG there's also the S part uh, or societal, and We have a question from Mariana in Leeds who's asked, What about the S, you know, the social sustainability? And she's interested in occupational self uh, safety and health. But the S part, I would imagine, covers a huge range of things, whether it's child labor, um, certain practices as well, isn't it?
1: So S is is a very diverse topic. And actually, one of the biggest challenges with, with S and social issues is not just the diversity, and I, I suppose I use that as a pun, um, not just the diversity, I suppose, in the kinds of topics and, and issues that are, are, are taken into account, um, but also, again, the lack of, I suppose, clarity and, and data around what uh, and how we should measure and manage that. So, as it could range from the very foundational aspects of human rights and labour rights, um, of course, we talk about things like diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, and actually, there's been quite interesting sort of studies uh, showing more recently um, uh, to, to demonstrate that there is value in having diversity uh, in, uh, in, in organizations. And in fact, it, fairly recently, there was a study um, by I think it was Willis Tower Watson, which is basically an investment consultant to, that demonstrated that um, investment managers who had more diverse teams actually outperformed their uh, least diverse teams from an alpha perspective. I mean, that's that's fantastic. And really sort of prove uh, your know, proof, I suppose, is in the pudding, right? And I think that was really interesting. Um, so there's that and then there's also things like um, uh, to Mariana's point, health. Uh, so to give you an example, and in fact, one of the leading proponents, I suppose, uh, comes from uh, Cambridge, uh, Dame Sally Davis uh, from the, the Trinity College has been a leading proponent around, you know, how should we be thinking about antimicrobial resistance? So to those of you uh, who are sort of not so familiar, antimicrobials are basically things like antibiotics, antivirals, and the use uh, uh, of that uh, is really sort of becoming dangerous, right? Because what it does is it builds up a body's resistance to to microbes effectively and viruses and, and whatnot. And antimicrobial resistance. Again, if you think about it from an asset management context, you know why do we care about health? Well, first of all, um, antimicrobial resistance could, if we don't uh, manage this, could lead to something like three point eight percent loss to GDP. Um, in twenty nineteen, uh, almost one point three million deaths were directly attributable to antimicrobial resistance or AMR. So we have to know what a What are we doing uh, uh, from that perspective to manage that? And this is across multiple uh, industries and sectors. And then two, what should we be doing uh, to to mitigate uh, AMR?
0: So how do um, asset management firms influence the companies that they invest in? Is it just a question of buying and selling uh, stakes in these companies?
1: Right. So um, that's a great question. So if you think about what an asset manager does on a day-to-day basis, um, first of all, we allocate capital. What that, that absolutely means is we buy and sell securities. And I say securities, sometimes they're private holdings, right? So we buy and sell um, stakes, I suppose, in, in companies. Uh, and these stakes could be equity, so, you know, shares. Uh, or it could be fixed income, bonds, right, uh, or loans, Uh, So what do we, what should we and what can we do is if we own a stake in the company or if we are financing a company through debt, then in effect, what we can do is we can work uh, with companies uh, to effectively um, ascertain whether or not they are doing uh, uh, or running their businesses in a sustainable way. And like I say, we do this in the context of whether or not it's material to the business um, and also material to the world. Right. What are the systemic risks involved uh, uh, here. What can we do therefore if we are shareholders or debt holders? Um, slightly diverse uh, depending on what you own. But let's say we start with shareholders, you're an equity owner. First of all, you can do uh, you, you can uh, engage uh, and you can engage with companies uh, both at the board's level, so the, the corporate boards you can engage with the company's executives, so the CEO and the C-suite. Um, you know, if you're a debt holder, you can engage with the, the treasurers to make sure basically that ultimately across the company, you're telling them, this is what we care about. Now, what does engagement do? Well, there are really, I would call the objectives of engagement, I would say, are like maybe the three eyes. One is to identify, you know, to identify what are the material issues or risks associated with the companies and their sectors. Um... The second is influence. How do we influence not just them, but the broader uh, community and stakeholders? And the third is to improve, right? Very specific uh, positions that that we wanted them to improve on. So I'll use the AMR example again here. Um, So to give an example, to identify what the issue was, we actually reached out to utility companies, so water utilities, on whether or not they were aware of their role in managing antimicrobial resistance, right, and to to mitigate those risks, um, and when we did that exercise and we spoke to them, not only did we find that they were not aware, they usually didn't do very much in terms of their wastewater treatment. You know, they weren't monitoring uh, the uh, the presence of am uh, antimicrobials within within their water systems. So then, what do we do? We look to influence, and we think, how do we get maximum influence, right? So what we did was a, we wrote to the G7 ministers uh, as part of a consortium of, of, of investors to raise awareness that AMR is a financial risk to the system. So they need to care about it. If you can get policy action um, and commitment to it, then we think that that actually really accelerates you know, what sectors, businesses, industries do in response to that. And then finally i talked about improve so one of the things that we did was to support a shareholder proposal here uh, with companies like uh, mcdonald's for example to disclose what are their public health costs related to amr and so here you're really looking at you know sort of a let's call it a system-wide type of engagement right It's engagement with companies is engagement with other stakeholders peers and it's engagement with policy makers right the, the, the People who are effectively developing uh, uh, regulations and policies for their governments. Mm.
0: So, uh, following on from what you mentioned about the S part, Saswati talks. You know, lists some other components such as human rights. Uh, You mentioned EDI, but health, well-being, and safety. So, thank you for that one. Um, Aaron asks, you know, are there methods for quantifying ESG into the financial models? How does an asset management firm like LGIM use ESG along with the more traditional financial models that you have?
1: Sure, that's a, 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 another really interesting question. So um, I mentioned um, earlier on about the TNFT and, and frankly the lack of data in relation to nature. I think the area in which we have had the most um, data on is really on the climate side, right, and the good news is actually with better data, you get a better understanding of how to quantify that risk. So um, at least at Elgin, what we have is we've got uh, a climate modelling solution called Destination at Risk. And what we do there, in essence, is to, first of all, identify what the scenarios are. So, um, you know, we talk about the scenario pathways. Uh, the worst case scenario is, let's call it um, a, a four degrees Celsius and above uh, uh, scenario. Uh, we've got the the orderly 2 degrees Celsius. We've got the disorderly 2 degrees Celsius. And then we've got the, you know, the holy grail, the 1.5 degrees Celsius scenario. And what we're trying to do there is to ascertain with each of these scenarios, what is the energy mix that is needed or, or is sort of associated with that scenario? You know, what therefore does it mean from an inflation perspective, GDP's perspective, um, uh, so on and so forth. So you're trying to understand what is the economic outcome Based on these scenarios. From there, uh, you can also discern then how are companies uh, uh, modeled to against those scenarios. So for example, based on a company's past history of carbon emissions, based on its proposed or commitments, uh, trajectory of how it has been uh, moving towards a low carbon economy, you can start to figure out, well, okay, is a co- company more if all the companies in the world look like a four degree Celsius uh, company, a uh, uh, four degree Celsius sort of uh, position, or rather if they were well, let me get this. Way. if all the companies were performing in the same way, then we would have a four degree Celsius uh, uh, scenario. What that means is okay, so this company is what I say, four degrees Celsius aligned, that's terrible. Um, you know that's bad for the world, bad for the company. right? So then from there we then understand, well, what is the value at risk, I suppose, of uh, of climate in relation to that companies uh, today? We think of, if you if you think about finance, you talk about value at risk from a financial context. You can actually do that from a climate perspective as well, and that's how we think about whether or not uh, companies are really truly taking and quantifying uh, risks, um, and this is how we translate that into our portfolio management. So ideally we'd love to have a portfolio that is more 1.5 degrees Celsius aligned than 4 degrees Celsius aligned.
0: Mm. Someone on LinkedIn posted that uh, LGIM has developed its own bottom-up energy transition scenarios. What were the key issues you looked at when developing these scenarios? Is this what you were just explaining?
1: Yes, absolutely. So um, it ranged uh, from a lot of things, right, around, you know, what... So things like a uh, what is the world using today uh, in terms of energy mix? B, you know, what are uh, some of the costs associated with that? So, for example, in our latest uh, paper, we were quite pleased, actually, that uh, technology and cost is becoming less of an inhibitor, right, to moving uh, to um, to a low-carbon economy. Uh, we looked at, you know, what are the impacts there for... And also, what are the trade-offs, right? So, for example... Um, you know, we can talk about reforestation or afforestation. Uh, and if the world had unlimited land, we could use the entire world as a forest, as a carbon sink. And that would be fantastic. But we don't. So we don't have infinite land, right? And that is not an infinite resource. So what that then means is there are limitations also as to how much you can use uh, uh, this, a particular type of... Uh, carbon uh, uh, um, uh, mitigation methods. So there's there's that as well. Um, and then of course we look at uh, you know what is the uh, sort of like w- what are the trajectories around uh, energy uh, uh, production uh, in the world? What is the infrastructure uh, that is available to be used uh, to to enable that? So one of the key issues we have right now is we can talk about renewable energy we could have all the solar panels and wind farms in the world but we don't have a grid infrastructural system to support that so we absolutely need to upgrade our electricity mm. grid infrastructure to enable uh, you know to enable batteries uh, to enable electrification sorry of our of our society
0: mm. i remember one of our alums mentioning that if you really care about the environment don't hug a tree hug An electricity pylon because that's what is going to really help uh, in terms of the electrification side. But Amelia, you know, all uh, it's amazing what you mentioned about the energy transition, etc. All that kind of knowledge and expertise probably wasn't something that we'd associate a financial firm with having, maybe, you know, if I think maybe five, ten years ago. With your experience, how did Asset management firms like LG, IM, BlackRock, you know, develop that kind of expertise in terms of understanding uh, those drivers of climate change, those drivers of biodiversity, uh, so that they can incorporate that in their financial models.
1: That's, yeah, it's, um, it's not something you think about, right? When you think about people who work in the asset management industry... They're probably all like portfolio managers or something, but that is exactly, you're right, and totally to the point, which is uh, in order for us to build an understanding uh, of, of this, uh, interestingly enough, actually, the, the team that developed these scenarios and develops uh, our destination at risk Climate Change uh, Modeling Toolkit, uh, uh, the head of the team was actually somebody who was an energy specialist, right? So... An energy uh, analysts and then you know ran portfolios uh, in commodities and understood effectively how material these risks are uh, these climate risks are to companies and so uh, you know one of the reasons why we can affect and I think uh, David uh, Rees has asked actually a question as well on, on the comments about when you're thinking about trying to engage companies specifically on you know why should I care about climate Ultimately, you have to point to the fact that because this is a material risk in your business, for example, if you are a Starbucks and you've got no more access to coffee because we can't grow any more coffee because we've got a nature problem here and a biodiversity problem. We don't have enough pollination to, to have more better harvest of coffee, and crop failure, etc. Like if they don't understand that that is a material risk in their business, then we have a real problem because that means they don't know how to run their business, right? So that's why as individual investors, uh, or rather as uh, individual companies, when we engage with them and we talk to them about their material risks, it's about trying to ascertain whether or not there is an impact on their bottom line at the end of the day. Mm. Does, should BP or Shell care about the world's transition to a low-carbon economy, to the world's energy transition? They should, because in the long term, if they don't do it, they will be you know, a, a company that has basically lost out. You know, it's a good example, I think, was it um, Kodak, I remember, is a good sort of well-known case study, right, of a company that sort of actually had a very early exposure to digital uh, uh, photos and that sort of thing, but then they thought, you know what, I've got my my main business is in film, so why should I be thinking about that? And then Mm -hmm. guess what, (laughs) they're extinct now, like it's, it's a problem if a company doesn't understand the the, how these mm. respond material to their businesses.
0: Yeah. And the the comment from David that uh, you were referring to, David was asking from the perspective of an individual company, how do you get them to change their behavior if the climate-friendly options appear, at least on the face of it, more expensive? So thank you very much, uh, David, for that. Um, Amelia, you know, we on the end... Oh, yes... There's the technical skills of doing an Excel spreadsheet, figuring out WAC, return on investments, things like that. But it sounds like from what you mentioned, a lot of that effort or a lot of the work that you have to do with in invested companies is more personal and trying to empathize, trying to influence. So Saswati asked, you know, when you, you have this process, you mentioned about the three I's, how do you get the stakeholders, the people who you're investing in, uh, to understand the materiality of all of this?
1: All right. so um, there is, there are very a lot of ways to do that. Um, we To give you an example, if we just talk about corporate boards, um, we run it you know an annual sort of exercise um, to explain to the boards, first of all, uh, what, uh, what we as shareholders care about, right? So what are the things that we think are, are most material uh, from a systemic risk perspective? And the reason why I say systemic risk is also particular to, um, to the firm that I work in because we run a large part of our business on index trackers. So if you think about it, that means I'm tracking MSCI World, P 500. I can't necessarily just not invest in it, right? My job is to invest in all of these companies that are represented on these indices and benchmarks. Now, if, I, if divestment or not investing in it is, an, is not an option, then actually I have a real vested interest to ensure that these companies are sustainable over the long time. And when I see what, and if that's the case, then I have to think about it from what I call a universal owner perspective, which is that means I, I say I, we, the firm, are managing assets as if we are owning basically a broad slice of the economy. Mm-hmm. So when we do that, we are thinking about therefore raising market standards, not just every single company that we are really invested in, but all companies across the board. So to do that, you know, there's a big exercise that is around uh, educating and and explaining to uh, boards, so board directors, um, the executive teams, investor relations within those companies about the key um, systemic risks that we care about. So this would be climate, nature and biodiversity, AMR I mentioned, diversity and inclusion and, and, and cybersecurity. And all of these things that that we're concerned about, how it impacts us uh, uh, and our views on the longevity of their businesses, right? The sustainability of their businesses. Um, So we have run a lot of sort of big things like that. The other thing that we've actually also done, um, which is maybe different to, I suppose, what other managers do is we have developed our own proprietary ESG score, and so we assess companies. Uh, on on how they're performing from an ESG perspective. The difference between what we're doing and what everybody else is doing is we actually publish it. So companies know exactly where they stand with us. There is a red, amber, green light, so to speak, to demonstrate whether we think that they are best practice or not even meeting minimum expectations. And on that basis, um, we ensure that We are transparent in our assessment of companies, and they know exactly what concerns us. The Mm -hmm. other thing that we find um, is helpful sometimes is it's sort of the stick and the carrot. The stick is naming and shaming, and the carrot is naming and faming. So we have this thing called the Climate Impact Pledge. And as part of this pledge, we effectively um, identify companies that we think are leading laggards. I say leading laggards almost sounds a bit contradictory in itself, but effectively what we mean are large companies, influential companies who are really just not doing enough uh, from a transition perspective. And so what we do there is we engage with them uh, and we find that they are not responding to our engagement. They're not improving fast enough or progressing fast enough. Then we divest from them. But we don't divest quietly, we publicly divest, we tell everybody we're divesting because we don't think that you are meeting the minimum expectations of a company in terms of climate transition. And actually, that has brought people back to the table, that has brought companies back to the table, because it's not a great place to be in. But then we also fade them, right, when we find that they are progressing, that we publicly and very loudly tell everyone, these guys are doing a fantastic job. They've turned it around. They're making progress, and they're back in business from our perspective. And that is the carrot. So mm-hmm. I would say it's it's a, a lot of it is about um, engagement. It's about awareness. Uh, uh, it's about talking to all of the stakeholders within that organization with one voice and saying the same thing. Um, and then sometimes that public disclosure really does sort of um, energize the conversation. Mm-hmm.
0: I think you might have answered uh, Edam's first question, which is how do you communicate ESG performance and initiatives to your investors? And his second question was, are there any industries or sectors that you exclude from your portfolio due to ESG concerns?
1: So this, um, I would say, so that is how we communicate to companies. How we communicate to our investors, our clients, is typically uh, through uh, an ESG report. So what we do is we engage on the um, you know, like in what we think are metrics that kind of give you a sense of where things are at. So we talk about carbon emissions intensity. Uh, uh, we talk about the kind of engagement, so the percentage of the portfolio that we are engaging on. Um, we talk about the exposure to uh, uh, things like... Uh, carbon emissions or carbon reserves, for example, and fossil fuels, to give uh, clients an understanding uh, or investors an understanding of how their portfolios are positioned. And of course, the portfolio temperature alignment as well, right? which is what I mentioned earlier. Um, in terms of industries and sectors that we exclude, uh, it really depends. So at a firm, wide level, there are some um, exclusions that we do more generally. So we, uh, we don't invest, for example, in... Um, companies are involved in controversial weapons um, clearly something that we see as you know just there is no excuse (laughs) and that's why we we do that the other one also I think we have been um, very clear about is also investing in companies that we believe have a material exposure to thermal coal uh, extraction and power generation so we generally do not uh, invest in companies that have more than 20% revenue exposure to either of these activities and then it depends again on the type of product so um, in different portfolios where you know uh, clients sort of uh, have want a more specific sustainability related objective then we do sometimes exclude certain uh, more sort of and uh, different uh, 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 companies as well based on that so for example, Uh, companies that have been uh, perennial violators of the United uh, Nations Global Compact, which is in in essence 10 principles around uh, human rights, labour rights, uh, and the environment, as well as uh, bribery and corruption. So there are certain types of exclusions that we also add on, depending on the kind of portfolios um, that we run.
0: Mm. And can you talk a bit about, say, the regional differences? when it comes to ESG investing? Are there differences between Europe, North America, and Asia?
1: Absolutely, so I, I, I guess the what we call the politicization of ESG um, in the US is a very well-publicized uh, thing uh, where effectively what we're saying is that, or what we say, what the industry has identified and what we've all seen is that you've got sort of a a bigger and bigger divide uh, on ESG-related topics uh, by association of your political sort of uh, spectrum, I suppose, you know, whether you sit on the left or the right. Um, And as a function of that, you see sort of the appetites for investors are clearly sort of veering away from each other, right? So you'll have uh, certain states that clearly sort of want to integrate ESG much more proactively within within their portfolios. And then you'll have other states that, you know, do not believe that this is relevant to their investment returns. And then you'll have um, the rest of the world. And I think what we see, at least in Europe, actually, is there isn't a question as to whether or not you should be integrating ESG considerations to your portfolios. The question is more, how you do that? And this is actually really interesting, which is that I think we've seen a real evolution in thinking around what does investing ESG investing mean. So in the very beginning, when people talked about responsible investing, they were really looking at it from a sort of do-no-harm kind of concept or an, or an exclusionary sort of method right, of investing. So what that means is they would typically uh, not invest in companies that Sort of uh, have the most are most vulnerable or most exposed to material issues, and that could be, as I mentioned, things like controversial weapons or or, uh, or, or thermal coal and fossil fuels, uh, etc. Then I would say, you know, basically between five and ten years ago, uh, we've now been seeing uh, we, we saw an evolution towards well, how do you align portfolios to what we think are companies that are managing these um, what we call not yet uh, financial uh, uh, risks and opportunities. And this is, I think, what most people understand is ESG investing. So, you know, really sort of assessing companies based on financially material ESG risks and opportunities. Are they winners or losers because of uh, this? Are they leaders or laggards? Uh, and then mm-hmm. weight, overweighting companies that they think are better managing these risks and opportunities and underweighting those that are um, not. Now, um, uh, I think uh, there is also uh, a concept around investing for impact, right, so in impact investing, and here um, we are seeing uh, companies that actually want to invest in companies or projects that they believe will have a positive environmental and social societal outcomes, uh, and this could be affordable housing. It could be uh, renewable energy. Um, And then most recently, uh, I think the latest evolution that I have seen in in investing from from across the spectrum is actually targeting laggard companies, taking positions in them and engaging with them primarily to extract uh, both an improved uh, sustainability performance and a financial performance from these companies. Um, and it's really interesting because it is the most sophisticated investors who are doing this, um, and if you think about it, it's, it's not a simple decision to make, right, because you're adding carbon emissions to your portfolio. You're exposing yourself to reputational risk of investing in these so-called brown companies, but what you're really trying to do is you are really trying to transform uh, the real-world economy by taking a stake in them, saying, look, these companies set specific KPIs, Uh, for engagement, make sure that they are looking to achieve that, progressing towards that and making them accountable for that. And I think that is a real evolution in how we're thinking about uh, sustainable investing.
0: Is what you're mentioning um, kind of linked to what this comment from uh, someone on LinkedIn where they're asking, do you believe ESG investing has created inflationary pressures in the oil and gas industries because of this divesting of... uh, investments or uh, lower capex investments in fossil fuel projects. Are you saying this more sophisticated way of investing would help to uh, go away from just, I'm, I'm going to disengage from oil and gas because of reputation, but I want to engage in those industries and see how you can have a better transition?
1: The, I think the irony is that the inflationary pressures we're seeing in, in, in commodity prices in energy is actually because we have underinvested in renewable energy. Um, if you think about how re- what does renewable energy do, like, if you take the UK as a very simple example here, you've got, uh, you've got offshore wind, for example, that you could extract energy from. Uh, you could, you know, if you are, and if you do that, then you're actually more energy secure. Right? You're less reliant, for example. Uh, if you're using solar energy, you're using wind energy, uh, you're less reliant, on the um, other uh, economies or, or markets, uh, countries in the world that are exporting oil and gas to you. So if if we had, I suppose, uh, a more uh, more investment in renewable energy across the world, we would actually have more stable outcomes. And what is interesting also is that the CapEx in renewable energy is usually more on the upfront, right? So, yeah, it seems painful. But if you think about it, after that, it's practically free. So, so if anything, you are actually, that translates to more stable uh, prices in the longer term. Now, what causes inflation is a few things, right? One is that during that transition, if it is disorderly, then it increases, it does create some inflationary pressure because not only are you having to build continue building your oil and gas production uh, uh, and, and, and power generation uh, facilities, you're also building this renewable energy. And if you have no certainty of what we're supposed to move towards, you, you create that inflationary pressure. So there is some, I would say, transient inflationary pressure from a transition. But ultimately, if you want better, more stable uh, costs to, to people uh, in terms of um, energy, if you want more secure energy, then actually it makes sense to move towards renewable energy.
0: Well, thank you so much, uh, Amelia for lifting the lid on the asset management industry and how ESG investing, it isn't easy, but when it works, it can have a huge impact on businesses and the world. The balance sheet will be back next week where we'll be talking about global marketing. Professor Eden Yin will be looking at how social media gave every brand the promise of a global reach. But in this age of geopolitical tensions, can any brand afford to be, still afford to be global? So join us 29th September at 12.45 PM UK time. Till then, stay well, be, stay safe and see you next time.